Welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study. We will study the big book of Alcoholics <laughs> Anonymous. Today's date is April 1st. This was your wedding date, right, Harlan? And no. uh, <laughs> okay, well, April Fool with that one. Oh, okay. My name, my oh, name is Veronica Cole, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater from New York. I will be your host for today's study. Our co-hosts are Nancy J, uh, Linda, I believe Linda is co-host, and uh, Maria. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts for private message in the chat function. The chat function uh, will be disabled until um, five minutes before the question and answer session. Please note that the speaker Harlan G will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer session, which follows will not be recorded. We ask if you can please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for any reason. During the meeting, we will post the link to our seventh tradition. This money goes towards the cost of our Zoom account, the cost of uploading our recordings, and we also send contributions to our intergroup and WSO World Services Association. We will post a link in the previous week's recordings, and these are available by clicking the link that will be uh, posted in the chat box. I will now turn the meeting over to Harlan G. Please take it away. Thank you very, very much, Veronica. I'm very honored to be here. And I'm Harlan G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in Scottsdale. Very, very happy to be here. I hope it's just absolutely stunning where you are as it is here. It's just an amazing, it's going to be about 80 here today. And it is a beautiful, beautiful spring day. The nearest cloud is somewhere over New Mexico. And it's just absolutely stunning here today. Anyhow, we are studying the promises and the promises are all over this book. So when I say we're studying the promises, what I mean specifically is we are studying the ones that are referred to on page 83 at the bottom. And if you remember last week, we covered if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, painstaking means to me that this is something I have to work at. This is not something that is going to be an event. It is not something that is a, a one-time deal. Painstaking means that this is something I am going to have to dedicate my efforts to over the course of my entire lifetime. How many times have we gone to meetings or on the phone or anywhere and people say, yeah, I worked the steps two years ago. I worked the steps five years ago. You can't have worked the steps two years ago or five years ago and think that you're in recovery. It does not work that way. The working of the steps 
is a lifetime process. It never stops. We, we work them and we live in 10, 11, and 12. We sometimes do four steps, but we have to live in 10, 11, and 12. And that means an ever-changing metamorphosis an ever-changing situation as it comes to as it comes to our relationship with God in step two, because life changes. And I have to keep working at this and working at this and working at this. So the people that you see in the rooms or the people that you see on Zoom that are in any type of recovery that you would want are people that are working at it constantly. It is a constant, constant endeavor. It is a beautiful endeavor. The work is hard, but the wages are very, very high, very high wages. You will never work for wages in your life that are higher than this program. The what are the what are the fruits of your labor? You get to live. And we're going to be talking a lot more about that today. And then last week we said we'll be amazed before we are halfway through. I am absolutely amazed at everything that happens in my life. Yes, there are things that are very painful. Yes, there are memories that I are very, very painful that haunt anybody, but yet. I do understand that it is that those pains, those embarrassments, those shames, those bouts of fear and anger and guilt and shame and remorse, which make me of maximum service to God and the people about me. And sometimes that knowledge is not adequate to assuage the pain. But yet in my more conscious moments, I do understand that I survived the turbulency of my life so that I could be a witness to the power of this program. And as a witness to the power of this program, I know that I have experienced many, many miracles, not one miracle or two miracles, but thousands of miracles. And most of the miracles that I've experienced from the hand of God, I was not even aware of at the time and may not be aware of now. I do the best I can to count my blessings every day. Every single day is a day when I do count my gratitudes. Uh, I make that one of my daily practices. Every single day of my life, I ask God for direction. I ask God for help. And I express my gratitude to God. And I tell God something that I saw today that was beautiful, that moved me to understand that he is here and that all is well. And these are things I do every single day of my life. But when we are painstaking about this phase of our development, that means that it is a constant endeavor. It is not an event. It is a process. And as a process, I have to see it over the long haul. This is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And then it says here, we are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. And we talked last week about the absolute freedom that I feel today. You know, there's a picture of me behind where I'm sitting right now live. And it is a picture of me at the Art Institute in Chicago. And I'm standing in front of some very special stained glass windows. That picture is a picture of the hand of God, because that picture represents for me a new freedom and a new happiness. That picture represents to me 
that I was absolutely delivered. Now we're going to come upon next week, we're going to come upon the season of Passover, or for many, we're going to come upon the season of redemption. And in every way that I can be released from the bondage of this disease, I have been released. I am free today to live my life and not worry about what you're going to see me eating or where you're going to see me going or what you're going to see me doing or anything that's going in and out of my mouth. I don't live in that constant shame, but it has to go beyond what I eat. It has to go beyond what I say. It's the things that I experience on a daily basis that let me know inside by that warm feeling that I am serving God. And as it says on page 77 of the big book, it says our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about me. And every day of my life, I am lucky enough to be able to close my eyes right as I'm going to sleep and know in my heart that I did the best that I could to be of service to my fellow sufferer. And when I look for God, when I can't find God, I know where to look. I look for God in the face of one of his children. And if I look in the face of one of his children, I will invariably find him. And when I reach out to that child of God with love in my heart to do the best I can to be of service to that person, I get a sense very clearly that I'm serving God, that I've done what it is I need to do. So when we read those words, we are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. The picture behind me of me at the Art Institute is a picture of so many miracles coming together that it's not even funny. Um, there's just a lot of levels of the miracles that I experience in my life. I experience miracles in the here and now, and I experience many miracles that call me back to a day of my life years ago when things were not so good, when I was in the throes of this disease. I'll share this with you just for a second. I may have shared this last week. If I did, just bear with me. When I was walking into the Art Institute of Chicago, downtown on Michigan Avenue. I was with somebody who I want to be with. I was with somebody who just fills me with joy. And I cannot tell you how happy it makes me to do things, to endeavor in things that make this person happy. It just gives me tremendous, tremendous joy to do that. And that was a part of what I was experiencing. But wait, there's more. There's something else that I want to share with you about the Art Institute of Chicago. When I was walking into that building, I remembered the last time I was there. And the last time I was at the Art Institute of Chicago, I was a fifth grader at Green School on the north side of Chicago on Devon and Whipple. And my teacher's name when I was in fifth grade was Mrs. Lamette. And Mrs. Lamette, like most teachers at Green School, took us to the Art Institute once a year for looking at the pictures and doing all that. The only thing I really remember about the actual art 
that I saw that day so long ago, back in the 1960s, was lots of pictures of Campbell soup cans. Chicken noodle soup seemed to be very, very popular with the artists that drew these pictures. There was a lot of chicken noodle soup pictures, and there was pictures of cream of mushroom soup. Whoever this artist was, they really got off on Campbell's soup. That was like a big thing with them. But there's something else I remember. The last time I had been at the Art Institute of Chicago, I was 10 years old, and I was on heavy-duty amphetamines amphetamines, amphetamines. That's, uh, I don't know why I said amphetamines. I don't know how that came out of my mouth. But anyway, I was on heavy duty amphetamines prescribed to me by Dr. Jacobson in Chicago, who told my mother that these pills would curb my appetite. And boy, did they, boy, did they curb my appetite. And I remember my head now, this was not the first day I was on these pills. This was not the last day I was on these pills, but I was on these pills the last time I went to the Art Institute in Chicago. And these pills were rattling around in my head, these heavy duty amphetamines, and I was not feeling very good at all. One of the things I remember from that time of my life when I was nine and 10, was when you're on these amphetamines, you sleep about 15, 20 minutes a month. You don't sleep, you can't think, you can't really, you can't function at any level. These, these pills are so powerful. And yes, boy, do they cut your appetite. But I remember the feeling that I had on these pills. And the only way that I could be delivered from those pills and from the shame and the guilt and the remorse, the horror, the nightmare of that day, those days in my life on that medicine was through God. There's only one way out. And it says in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says, we have, a, we have an illness that only a spiritual awakening, a spiritual experience will conquer. So the only way that I was ever going to be able to live and to walk into this magnificent building, if you've never been there, you've all seen Michigan Avenue on TV shows and movies. If you watch Chicago Fire, Chicago Med, Chicago Police, or you've watched any of the, you know, uh, um, Ferris Bueller or anything like that. This is the building with the two lions that sort of, quote unquote, guard it. And that's the building that houses the Art Institute of Chicago. And I was never really an art person. I, I, I just never was. But on this day, I kept my attitude good and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Was I with somebody that, that I wanted to be with? Absolutely. Was that part of the fun for me? Was that part of the charge for me? Absolutely. You better believe it was. But God was with me that day in all aspects of that miracle to be with this person, to be free of those pills, to be free of the shame. And I was able to walk the museum. I was able to stand all that time. I was able to function just like everyone else. I didn't have to sit down every 10 minutes. I, I, I could function in this museum setting. And I thank God for that, like you cannot believe. 
How amazing is that? Well, moving on to the next thing, it says, we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. And for me, this is the most challenging of the, of the promises. There is a there is a part of me that definitely mourns my past, the, the lost decades, the lost time that I gave to this damn disease is a source of tremendous pain for me. It is a source of pain and I haven't come to grips with it completely. Although what I did this week at the beginning of the week is I got up at a quarter to one in the morning. I couldn't sleep for the life of me. I was having some thoughts and some conversations, which was really kind of bringing this all back to me. And I knew that I needed to do a fourth step. I knew I needed to take action. I knew that if I didn't take action, I was going to be in severe trouble. And I knew that because I know who I am. I know what I am. And there's no way that I'm going to be able to stand in there with all kinds of pain and all kinds of challenges and hang in there. It's just not going to happen. So I got downstairs here and I did a step four on this issue of the lost decades of my life and what I missed out on. And it made me feel better. I shared them with a very, very special friend who lives in Los Angeles, California. But here is what I can tell you. Every single thing that I went through prepared me to be here in front of you today. There is something that I read every day, and it's on page 124, and this is exactly what it says. It says, this painful past may be of infinite value to other families still struggling with their problem. You can tell it appears in the chapter, The Family Afterwards. We think each family which has been relieved owes something to those who have not. And when the occasion requires, each member of it should be only too willing to bring former mistakes, no matter how grievous, out of their hiding places. Showing others who suffer how we were given help is the very thing which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. We know things that others don't know. We feel things others can't feel. We understand things at a very deep level that others can never understand. You can't learn this in a book. You can't learn what it's like to be bulimic and try to huck up your dinner or huck up your lunch or your binge. You can't know what that's like from a book or a movie. You have to live that. Experience isn't the best teacher. It's the only teacher. I know what it's like to weigh 335 pounds in high school and 500 and 600 and 700 pounds. I know what that's like because I lived it. And you lived your hell. 
There's 170 of you on the line right now. And I got to tell you that I'm very, very flattered that you're here today to hear anything I would have to say. But you are the professors of my life. The calls that you make to me, the things that you teach me, the things that you that you share with me every single day of my life, make me better prepared to sponsor and to be a part of this wonderful organization. You are my professors. Each and I heard a lead last night blew me away. Unbelievable. Our very, very dear friend from our Scottsdale group, she knocked it right out of the park. What an unbelievable situation that was. So I learn through your hell. I learned through your pain. You probably don't have a lot from your pleasure, unless it's post-recovery. You probably don't have a lot to, to share with me that I'm going to learn from on the things that went right in your life, but you do have a lot to share with me about your disease and about how you live through it and all these other things are of vital importance, not just to me, but to the people I will pass those concepts to. We are merely conduits. That's all we are. We are conduits of what? Conduits of pain, conduits of information, conduits of the most important thing you can be a conduit of. And what is that? Identification. What does Dr. Silkworth teach us in the doctor's opinion? In order for the message to have to be carried, it must have depth and weight. And the only ones that speak the language of the heart and the only ones that understand the language of the heart are us. Not that we're better than other people. Go try to explain this to somebody who's unafflicted. You cannot do it. Believe me, I've tried. I have many friends. I'm blessed. I'm very, very blessed. I didn't have girlfriends, but I had friends. I had people that loved me. I love them. And I've tried to explain to them what this is from the time we were seven, six. Even though I didn't have a name for it, I couldn't say, I'm a compulsive overeater. I have an allergy of the body. I have a twist of the mind. I couldn't explain to them that, but they will never understand in a million years why anybody, I mean anybody, eats a third cookie. Okay, you want a cookie, have a cookie. You, you're really hungry. You've been digging ditches all day. You've been maybe uh, fixing trucks or doing construction. All right, two cookies, two, but three? They, they just, that's beyond their comprehension. But I can talk to you about eating the whole box and your head's going to be going up and down, up and down, up and down, because this is a place to understand. And this is a place to be understood. Thank God we have a place where we can go and not only understand, but to be understood. And uh, St. Francis of Assisi teaches us it is far more important to understand than to be understood. And where is it better for me to understand than in the rooms of OA? I say nowhere. Let's continue with today. 
Today, we're going to start with, we will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. That's our jumping off point for today. So we will comprehend the word serenity. And when I'm in my disease, now I know that some of you won't relate to this. I had a lot of money issues. My income was extremely low. My bills were extremely high. I often made choices to buy Girl Scout cookies and Snickers and Almond Joy and Milky Way instead of paying my rent. I drove without insurance. I put people that I love in a car that was not insured. I wrote bad checks to anybody dumb enough to take one. I robbed Peter to rob Paul. I lied when the truth would have served me better. And above everything, I ate and ate and ate and ate and ate. I wanted to die a lot more than I wanted to live. I did not see a point to life at all because I could not comprehend the word serenity and I could not comprehend the word peace. These were words I only could define from a dictionary. I could not define them from my experience. There was no way that I was going to be able to understand serenity and peace because I felt guilt and shame and remorse just because I was sucking air out of the atmosphere because the signal that the world sent me from the time I was four or five years old is as a fat boy, I am existentially incorrect and evil and untouchable and unlovable and unlikable and unwanted. That as a fat child, I was different than everybody else in ways I did not want to be different. That there was nothing about me that was acceptable. In every possible management book you will ever read in your life in business, beautiful people, Pretty people, attractive people, they get more jobs, they get more promotions, and they are perceived in psychological testing as being more credible than people like me. I knew that two and two was four. I may not know much math, but I know that two and two was four. And if I said two and two was four, and a thin boy who was considered attractive or a, a, a pretty girl said two and two was 21. The answer was 21. I was ostracized. I became an object of ridicule in this world. People laughed at me in public. People became my enemies because they persecuted me wherever I went. I could not walk around in, in our society and not be made fun of, not be pointed at, not be laughed at, not have my ass grabbed, not have my stomach grabbed by people I did not even know. And I had to pretend that it didn't bother me. I was open game for every wise ass with a comment. 
And I had to justify that in my mind that I deserve this behavior because I was fat, because that was the signal that I got from the world around me, that because I'm fat, this is happening. And if I wasn't fat, it wouldn't happen. How was I supposed to know serenity and peace when all my life is spent in guilt and shame and remorse over today and yesterday? And for as far back as I can remember, there was no serenity within me. There was no peace within me. I was in the middle of a lie. I was in the middle of a, of a life I didn't want. I was in the middle of a world. I didn't understand them and they sure didn't understand me. And, you know, I so wanted to just acquiesce to their demands. I so wanted more than anything. I wanted to be the little boy that they wanted me to be. I wanted to be a thin kid. More than I wanted anything else, I wanted to be a skinny boy. I wanted to be the first baseman of the Cubs, or I wanted to be the quarterback or the middle linebacker of the Bears. I wanted it all. But what I most wanted was I just wanted to be left alone. You know, a lot of little boys, they dream about having superpowers. Little boys, they dream of what they might do if they woke up and they were Superman or they were the Flash or they were Batman doesn't have any powers or Spider-Man. I loved Spider-Man. I loved Marvel Comics when I was a kid. Spider-Man and Daredevil and Thor and the Fantastic Four. Do you know whose superpower I wanted more than anybody's? I wanted the superpower of invisibility. I wanted to be invisible. Because if I could be invisible, then people wouldn't hate me. People wouldn't make fun of me. And people wouldn't say the things to me that they have said for all those years. So you can have your flying, your super strength. You can have your speed or your fighting ability where you can beat the crap out of anybody you want and all this other stuff. Those are all great powers to have. I wanted the power of invisibility because if I could be invisible, then I could be just like everyone else. Or I wanted to live in Atlantis the lost continent of Atlantis. Because if I could live in the water, then I could swim and I could be as fast and as everybody else. I also figured if I lived in Atlantis, maybe all that swimming would knock the weight off. You never know. You got to take a shot. You got to take every, every shot you can take, right? So I wanted the power of invisibility. And today, I don't want that power. I don't need that power. I can stand among people and not feel the guilt and the horror, the nightmarish horror of looking at a picture of myself and I'm four times the size of anybody else. How does that happen? Not by my hand. How does that continue to happen? Not by my hand. It happens because of God. I have been in every way, shape, or form, I have been emancipated from the slavery of this disease. 
This is the this is the spring, and this is the holiday that's upon us: redemption and freedom. I have redemption. I have freedom. So it ties in nicely to the time of year because this is April first, twenty twenty three, and this is the season that's upon us. So we will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. My bills are paid. I wish I had more money. Who doesn't? I wish I wish I had more money. Yes, I do. And and not just for the things I want, but for things I know would be just great in 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 my relationship and in, in in you know just different other arenas. I think that would be great. And we all have that, you know, if I win the lottery, here's what I'm going to do. You know, we have that scenario, don't we? We have it down, don't we? but I have my bills paid. I owe nothing. I don't have a car payment. I paid cash for my car. Now this house, very modest, very, very modest. Is this my dream house? God, no. God, no. Is But I love where I live. I bought this house, not because of, that it's my dream house. It's very affordable. And it's in a location that is a 10 out of 10 for me. This location that I'm living in today is ideal for who I am, what I am, and I'm close to people that love me and I love them back. That's why I love to live here. Now, the other thing that I did when I bought this house was I didn't know COVID was coming. It wasn't even COVID at the beginning. It was the coronavirus. Remember when it first came out, they didn't say COVID. They said coronavirus. And before Corona in March, March the 12th, night, uh, March 12th, 2020 was the last OA meeting I was at at the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club in Scottsdale. Well, the next day was a Friday, the 13th, and everything changed. I went to one other live meeting when Larry Kay came out to visit. We went to a live meeting. It was us two and I think two other people. And that was the whole meeting was four people. But I didn't see it coming. But I'm two blocks from where I used to go to meetings every day. So it was very convenient. And this is why I really love my house. And it's mine. See this wall I'm knocking on? Boop, boop, boop. It's my wall. If I want to spin on it or burn it, whatever. No, I'm not going to burn it. But if I want to spin on it or whatever, I can do that. You know, I it's my wall. Well, I grew up in rented apartments my whole life. So I was always a little afraid of the landlord because my mother and father were scared. This is my freaking house. And as long as I make the payments and as long as I keep up the insurance, it's my freaking house. That's freedom for me. That's peace. That's serenity. And you know what else? There's not one of you and there's 170 of you. At one point, I think there was 173 or 178. But there's not one of you that can say, I owe you a dime. And there's not one of you that can say, I saw him eating chocolate. I saw him eating French fries. I saw him eating whatever. No, you can't. Not, not unless you're lying. I mean, I can't control that. There's none of you that can say you called me and I didn't call you back. There's none of you that can say I texted you. You didn't text me back. You can't say it if, if, if you're honest. And that's freedom for me too. 
That's freedom. I got to blow my nose here. I am suffering because it is spring here and the trees and the flowers are all in bloom and they are out to get me and like, and people like me with these facocta allergies and my facocta allergies are just acting up. And I've been just kind of sniffing through this, but I had to stop and blow my nose here. But anyway, and I slept with the window open last night. What a dope, what a dope I was. I woke up this morning. I don't know what was more full, my nose or my 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 throat was it was a race between my nose being full and my throat being dry. So I don't know what was worse. But anyway, hold on one second. Speak of the devil. Okay. Now, okay. So we will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. I know in my mind that maybe I didn't do a great job my whole life, but today, yesterday, the day before, I did a good job of serving God, and I didn't put food in my mouth that did not belong there. I'm so happy about that. I'm so happy about that. And I have someone very, very special in my life, and that makes me happy. And I have many, many blessings in my life. And I can't even count them all. Wow, am I lucky. I never thought I would ever say the words, I am lucky. I'm alive and I want to be alive. I don't want to die. I want to live. I'm sorry, God, that I pissed away so much time with the narishkeit of eating. Narishkeit is foolishness. I wish that I hadn't wasted all that time, but please let me live now because I sure want to. I have so much to live for now. I'm so lucky. Let's move on. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. Wow, that's kind of a double entendre for me because I've gone very, very far down the scale. And yet, when I talk to men who call me up and they weigh three, four, five hundred, six hundred pounds, whatever it is, I know things about that that others can't possibly know that others have never experienced, no matter how far down the scale, we will see how our experience can benefit others. Without reading the whole paragraph again on page 124, I'm just going to read the last little snippet of it, cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. Do you know what's really special about you? What's really special about you is that you have been loaded with a story that will save lives. And in saving that life, you will save your own. How do I save my life in OA? Save someone else. When a lifeguard is trained, Sorry. Uh, when they train lifeguards at the Chicago Park District in Lake Michigan, and when we say the lake, we always mean Lake Michigan. So if we say we're going to the lake, that means Lake Michigan. 
When they train the lifeguards, they train them that the first instinctual act of the drowning is to grab onto you and drag you down with them. When you grab another compulsive overeater through this identification and through the information you have to cause an identification situation, a bridge is built through which both of you can trudge that road of happiness of that road of destiny to a recovery for both of you. Wherever two or more are gathered, wherever two or more are gathered, I will be there. That's a promise. Not a promise from me. It's a promise from God that wherever two or more of you are gathered, I will be. And so when you can use this identification, no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. There is no greater joy than the joy of passing this program to someone who has given up on their own life. Someone who is circling the drain, someone who is going down the drain, and you come along with your story and you can see the visceral change in their face. You can see them start to pass from wanting to die, from wanting to live. And how does that occur specifically? It occurs because they can identify with you. And if you can recover after all the crap that you've been through, maybe they can too. You know, it's no secret in here that one of my heroes is Clancy Immisland. I love Clancy. I think Clancy's podcasts are a must. If you've never listened to Clancy Immisland, shame on you. Shame on you. He's funny and he's wonderful and he's just great. And you know what Clancy Immisland says? He says that recovery takes place when one alcoholic talks to another alcoholic so that the, the first alcoholic's feelings of unique difference starts to abate and he starts to identify with the, with the second alcoholic and begins to take action after action after action after action that he does not yet believe in. This is when recovery can take place. Be that second alcoholic. And you will find that you will no matter how far down the scale you have gone, you will see how your experience is benefiting, not can benefit, but is benefiting others. And if the story of your hell, the story of your hell can help another person, that's all God could want from you. You don't want to you don't want to give money, don't. You don't want to whatever, don't. But sponsor, share yourself. There are people on this line, there are people in this Zoom room right now that you look at them and because you compare your shaky, broken insides with their seeming together outsides, you compare and you despair. But if you had the treat that we had last night 
on the Scottsdale meeting of hearing the story of some person, you start to realize that nobody comes in here on a roll, that each and every one of us, be you man, be you woman, be you Jewish, be you Catholic, be you Protestant, be you Buddhist, Muslim, it doesn't matter, gay, straight, black, white, green, yellow, orange, does not matter. We are all possible lifesavers for other suffering people. Take off this hat of not being willing to speak. Take, unshackle yourself. Take off that identity as someone who just kind of sits here, doesn't open their camera, doesn't say anything. You know, I get calls from people that say, how come on vision it's like the same people all the time? And then I'll invariably ask them, hey, when was the last time you hit star one to share? Oh, I would never say anything. I don't know what to say. Yes, you do. That's horse hockey. Yes, you do. You know exactly what to say. You're just worried maybe that it won't be the perfect thing because we're perfectionistic, sensitive, immature rebels. Stop waiting to be the perfect sponsor. Stop waiting to say the perfect share. Stop waiting to do the perfect lead and just share from the gut. This session that I'm doing right now, is it perfect? No, but I'm doing the best I can. If I could do better, I would. But the bottom line is you have something. And if you want to know how your experience can benefit others, give God a chance. Make an outreach call. You hear somebody is, is struggling. You hear somebody is 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 binging you hear somebody's not quite where they need to be in their recovery maybe you can't cure them maybe you can't even help them but you can try you can try you know what you can do you can show that person that somebody out there gives a damn and if you want to know how your experience can benefit others start giving your experience to others now some may not want it I've sponsored hundreds of men over the years that are knee deep in pizza boxes and ice cream boxes, ice cream containers. But I've sponsored other men who are in beautiful recovery. Give God a chance. Give it a shot. Take your turn at bat. You know, Bill Wilson came home one time in April of 1934. 1935, excuse me, 1935. He came home and he was going to an Oxford group meeting with Lois, but he was really incensed. He was really upset at God. And he said to Lois, I got this vision from God that I'm supposed to help drunks. And damn it, Lois, none of them are getting sober. And she was putting in an earring. And she was looking in the mirror and she turned to him and said, but you're staying sober. But you're staying sober. She changed the course of the world. Years later, by Clancy Immislin, she was asked, what made you say something so fundamentally simple and true? She said to Clancy, it seemed like the only logical answer to his problem, that he was staying sober.
Bill started drinking in 1917. And for 17 and a half years, he was drunk most of that time. Here we are in 1935, and he's about to go to Akron, Ohio, after a visit to Dr. Silkworth. And Dr. Silkworth tells him to stop preaching from a moral hilltop and tell people what he, Silkworth, had told Bill about the allergy and the twist of the mind. And the very first person that Bill will try this new method on is Dr. Robert Holbrook Smith, who became the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. Don't quit five minutes before the miracle. You don't know what's around the next corner. And every single time that you share yourself and you tell somebody how far down the scale you have gone, you will create immortality, not for yourself in terms of longevity, but every time you help another suffering person, that deed achieves immortality. I have to tell you about a story of a guy that I used to know. He's dead now. His name was Scott. And Scott was very popular with the girls. To say he was very popular with the girls is like saying ice cream is very popular with fat boys during the summer. He was very popular with the girls. Dark, dark hair. He looked much more Italian than Jewish, much more Italian. But he was an actor and he got a part in an on-Broadway play and he lit out for New York. While he was there, he met the girl of his dreams and he... And this girl said at the end of the run of the play, they're going to go to Los Angeles and they're going to try to get into TV or movies or commercials or what have you. But he was in AA. So when he got out to Los Angeles, he served AA. And on Saturday night, a Saturday night, he was manning the phone. A call came in. It was a guy in a motel in East Los Angeles. And if you know anything about Los Angeles, you know that the East Los Angeles area is not exactly the high rent district, is it? Just not the high rent district. So he goes out to East Los Angeles with a friend and they're talking to a guy who is sitting on a bed. And they're talking to him and he's falling asleep and they decide they're wasting their time. They put him in bed. They took off his shoes and they put him in bed. They put the bottle of whiskey on the nightstand and they left. Five years later, five years later, he is at an Alcathon in San Diego, California, and he is at the end of his lead, at the end of his speech, and he is going to lunch like all of them because it's almost noon. And a man walks up to him, a great big man walks up to him and puts a bear hug on him and says, are you Scott? He says, yes. He says, you saved my life. Scott says, uh, thanks, but I, I, I don't know you. Who are you? Oh, the guy says, oh, yes, we better. Yes, yes. He says, you're right. Yeah, you don't. He says, do you remember a few years ago? 
You went out to this motel in East LA and you talked to a guy and the guy fell asleep. He said, oh yeah, I remember that wasn't you though. He says, no, no, that wasn't me. He says, that guy died about three months after you came. He says, I was hiding under the bed and I heard every word you said and I haven't had a drink since. You never know how it's going to come, where it's going to come from, or who it's going to come to. I love the Chicago Cubs. I'm wearing one of my Chicago Cubs t-shirts today because this is opening week in Chicago for the Cubs. And the White Sox will open up, I believe, Monday or Tuesday. So I'm not one of these Cub fans that hopes that the Sox lose because I was a vendor and I want all the vendors to make money. And it's very hard. In all my years of vending, I never learned how to sell anything to an empty seat. So as long as there's an ass in the seat, you got a shot at selling something. But if there's no ass in the seat, you're not going to sell anything. So anyway, I'm a Cub fan. I have been since the time I knew the difference between, you know, whatever and whatever. I love the Cubs. So why am I talking about the Cubs? Now I've lost my train of thought. I'm certainly not getting any younger here. Okay. Well, the bottom line is you never know. Oh, I know why I was talking about the Cubs. Baseball is a game of that's very hard to play, and it's a game of failure. If you got a hit just three times out of 10 as a major leaguer, You'd hit 300, the the mystical 300. You'd not only be in the Hall of Fame, you'd have more hundreds of millions of dollars than you could ever count. Three out of 10. Seven times out of 10, you will fail if you're very, very, very good. Get out of the results business. Get out of the results business. You are not in the results business. What does that mean? Don't worry about who is going to recover once you talk to them. You just do your job and the rest is between them and God. If you were a baseball player, three out of 10 is considered extraordinary. Extraordinary. Most major league starters, forget the guys that don't play that much. Starters, they're lucky if they hit 250, 260. Lucky if they can hit that much. So you are in a game where failure is all around you. Should you not try? Unshackle yourself from that insanity. Go out there and do the best you can. Do the best you can. You don't know who's going to recover or who's not going to recover. And you don't know what that person is going to say to someone that you don't even know that's going to help them. Somebody might say, well, I heard that in a way they said this and this. And that person might Their eyes might be as big as frying pans because this is what they've been waiting to hear their whole life. You just don't know. So we will see how our experience can benefit others. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. Oh, and by the way, let me throw this in. 
it will help you. But it won't help you if you don't give it away. It just won't. This was never designed as a course in college where you take the course, you get your grade, you're done with English 101, you're done with English 102, or you've taken math 234 16 times and they finally gave you a D out of Rachmanis. Rachmanis is mercy. No, I'm kidding. I didn't take something 16 times, only 14. But the bottom line is, this is not a college course where you're, you're one and done. This is for the rest of your life. You too can see how far down the scale you have gone and how your experience can benefit others. Be that hand of God. Oftentimes when God can't make it, he wants to send one of his special children. And in circumstances that are all around you, he wants to send you. Because he knows that you have the compassion. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. You have the language of the heart that is given to you through this horrific nightmare of a disease that you did not survive for nothing. One of the greatest novels of all time is called Moby Dick, Herman Melville. Moby Dick is a book about a guy who was obsessed with this thought that if he killed the white whale, his life would be utopia. That it, I got to blow my nose. Hang on. See, this steals all my dramatic thunder. <sighs> Are these facocta allergies? See? All right. He's obsessed with this idea that he can kill this whale and achieve a utopia, achieve this, this unbelievable reality for himself. And in his obsession, what happens? Not only is he consumed, but so is the entire crew. There's one guy that survived. One guy, Quiqua, that survived. And he says at the end of the book, I alone survived so I could tell thee. There's a reason that you survived. There's a reason that you're still alive. And the reason is so you can tell thee. That's why you're here. There is no higher purpose. There is no higher calling. You have been given a recovery. It's not free. I got to blow my nose. Okay. It's not free. You got to pay. You owe. And if you want to, you, you want to be utilitarian in God's world, one of the things you can do is look for God in the face of one of his children and help them get out from under the horrible suffering of this disease. Now, before I turn it back, we will meet next week and we will continue on with the promises. But I just want to remind anybody from the Bay Area of California, the Silicon Valley Intergroup is having a retreat the 21st, 22nd, and 23rd of April. I am doing that workshop. 
I would love to see you. If you can make it, go to the Silicon Valley Intergroups website, or maybe somebody who is smarter than me can put it in the chat and you can register for this. It's the 21st, 22nd, 23rd of April. And just to give you some idea of what's coming in November, November the 17th, 18th, and 19th, we're going to Rimini, Italy. And we're going to be doing a three-day workshop in Rimini, Italy. And that should be exciting. Now, November is obviously not optimal for, uh, you know, going to Italy or, you know, anything like that. But we're going to make it nice and warm and cozy in there. And we're going to do some great work. So I hope to see you at these things. And uh, if, if I do any more traveling or anything, I will definitely keep you posted. So before I turn it back to, um, I forgot who, Maria or, or Nancy, no uh, math questions, no math, no way, no math, no food questions, please. It's a waste of time. No math, no food. And if you did ask a question,